Tune to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, when the news broke that Queen Elizabeth II died, we turned to a member of our HPR family, Ian Capps, worked for Reuters for almost two decades, and he shared a very personal memory as an eight-year-old child watching the Queen's parade leading up to her coronation many decades ago. And so this morning, as the 10-day mourning period draws to a close with the Queen returning to Buckingham Palace in Westminster Abbey, where the family is to hold a private service, we turn to another member of our HBR Ohana, who is in London. Amber Khan worked as a producer on The Conversation for several years. She left Honolulu to get her Master's of Fine Arts in London. We talked with her this morning about the mood of the city during this time of great change. There are people who have grown up here and see the Queen as this grandmother figure who's been there with them most of their lives. And, and they kind of separate her from the institution that she represented for so long but it's so weird because she's she's made it so clear that that she's one in the same like her life and her position are of the state basically and she represents the monarchy and the state it's weird because people here are mourning her but there's also this other side of the coin of people who are are trying to seize this opportunity to speak up for like a, I guess a change you know it's a good opportunity to start talking openly about a change and and how we view the monarchy and hold the monarchy in, in, in this weird political position here. It is a, a change, and, you know, there are folks that want to reshape the monarchy, and, you know, under King Charles, you know, that could happen. You know, the, we've heard lots of discussion about making the monarchy's footprint smaller. Yeah, like, she had a lot of opportunities to say sorry for a lot of things that the British Empire did and to sort of repair a lot of the damage that they had done over centuries but i mean i'm not someone who's from here but just from observation and you know knowing history she hasn't really done much of that and it's a good opportunity for king charles to make amends for a lot of the damage they've caused that the british empire and the monarchy has caused over centuries but only time will tell what kind of action he he's going to take well, you know, share with our listeners what it's like for you uh, living there in London. How has it changed your daily life, just this whole morning period? So the city of London has become insanely crowded. There are thousands and thousands of people that have just flocked to Buckingham Palace, just the area. In my morning route, uh, I I don't know if any of uh, the listeners who are familiar with London, I cycle from Greenwich to Notting Hill every morning. and. The cycle is fine up until I get to about Trafalgar Square, which is close to Buckingham Palace. And from there, the whole mall, which is like this huge line of trees going up to Buckingham Palace, completely blocked off. And the ground is just completely covered in flowers from all the mourners that have come to visit her. And then on top of that, there's this queue. There's a line to go and see her and pay their respects at Westminster Abbey. And the queue stretches I think it's about six miles long, but it stretches throughout the entirety of the city almost. It's, I live on the opposite end of the city from the palace, and the queue is all the way in Bermondsey, and which is close to where I live. And in the morning, I, I cycle and I can see these, these mourners who are waiting to see the queen, and they've waited over 30 hours just to see her. So it's been a huge logistical issue just kind of navigating the people and the traffic because a lot of the, the roads have been closed off to manage the queue. You know, we've all been watching the media coverage, you know, over the last 10 days. And gosh, now that it's drawing to a close, you know, I don't know how soon, you know, London will go back to normal. It's funny because you mentioned the media coverage and it's, it's a really big deal. You know, the, the queen has died. You know, every, every news media outlet that I know of is covering it. But there's also a huge change in government that's happened at the same time with Liz Truss becomes becoming prime minister and that's being overlooked. And I feel like a lot of things can happen that she can have, have happened under, under the cover of this funeral coverage, if that makes sense. That's just my two cents. 
which I've, I've observed. But, um, yeah, people are making a pilgrimage with her. Like, they're following her. They've been following her coffin from Edinburgh Edinburgh to to Buckingham Palace. And now she's going over to Windsor Castle. And I watched the funeral this morning. It's so historic, you know, and for you yeah. to be there to witness this is just remarkable. Like, I don't, I'm not a fan of the monarchy myself, personally, because of what they represent. Um, but I, I will admit it is a very historical moment, and it's, it's kind of cool to be in this city to witness it. We've been hearing from Ember Khan, a former producer for HBR's The Conversation. Khan, who's from Kalihi, is currently living and working in London. She moved from Honolulu to get her master's in fine arts, and she was sharing her thoughts about being in Great Britain during this historic time for the country. The sudden shutdown of one of two air ambulance companies this month sent healthcare officials scrambling. Dealing with an abrupt void is one thing, but sorting through a nursing shortage is another. We talked with Hilton Rathel of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii about something called compact nursing states. Hawaii is one of about well, five states that doesn't participate in a system that allows healthcare workers to um, work under reciprocal licensing. But first, here's Rathel addressing the shutdown of the air ambulance LifeSafe Kapono. Now, we have had for the last few years two air ambulance companies in Hawaii, one that has eight bases or eight different locations that they fly out of across the state and the other organization that has three. And the organization that has three bases, which is whose parent company is called Air Methods Corporation, they're based out of Colorado, they sent a notice last week to the governor's office on Wednesday, actually, sorry, the week before now, that they would be shutting down and that they'd actually be shutting down a total of 17 bases across the country. Three of those are, were in Hawaii. And so, again, we did have a number of discussions, but the good news is that the larger of the two air ambulance companies, which is run by a Global Medical Response is a parent company for the other organization, and they, again, have eight bases here in Hawaii, eight locations they work out of here in Hawaii, and they continue to be in the state. So um, we will still continue to have coverage in the state. Now, for a number of reasons, it's good to have more than one supplier or vendor of services, but Hawaii, being a small state, that doesn't always happen. Running air ambulances is very expensive. There's a lot of fixed costs. You know, you have to buy all the aircraft. You have to hire all the staff. You have to have maintenance. You have to have spare parts. All the pilots require ongoing training. So there's a lot of costs associated with running a air ambulance service, regardless of how many visits or how many trips they do. And so because of some factors that have happened in the market at a national level, Air Methods Corporation has made a decision that they can no longer operate in the state of Hawaii. And I understand they had, you know, about, about a couple dozen workers. Do we have any kind of an update as to, uh, you know, whether they'll be able to be picked up by the other company? Well, the good news is there's still going to be the same number of flights because the larger company, whose parent company is Global Medical Response, they're going to have to pick up all the flights that were being operated by Air Methods Corporation. And because they'll be running more flights, they also have a need then for more staff. So they were very quick to reach out to the employees of the, of the smaller company, or at least the smaller company here in Hawaii, and I don't know specifically how many staff have been hired and or will be hired, but the global medical response was very interested in picking up as many of these staff as possible because they have to do more flights, they need more maintenance people, they need more pilots. So the good news is that these individuals are in high demand and a material number of them we anticipate will be able to continue to work here in Hawaii if they choose to do so. 
there will still be statewide coverage and the global medical response which is a parent company for the larger company that is here in hawaii you know they are a large national company and they have a lot of resources and so you know we're not just dealing with a small operation here in hawaii it means that they have a lot of financial resources they have a lot of expertise so that gives us a higher level of assurance that they can continue to provide all the services that we need in the state of Hawaii. Moving on, what's the snapshot with our nurses? I know that you know we had to bring in a, a number of traveling nurses. We continue to have challenges in terms of having sufficient clinical staff in the state of Hawaii, including nurses. It's not just nurses, but nurses is the biggest single category. Even though the the number of hospitalizations from COVID is continuing to drop down. For the last few days, we've been had below 100 COVID patients a day. So the impact of the COVID pandemic on our hospitals, at least in terms of people with infected with COVID, has dropped significantly from where it was. But the our hospitals continue to be very, very full. We have census levels, we continue to have census levels, which is a total number of people in our hospitals at or either at the same level or greater than the peak of both the Delta and the Omicron surges. So our hospitals continue to be very, very full, which means we need a lot of staff. We are working very, very hard to, you know, to train staff, to get people in, to get them licensed. But because our hospitals continue to be so full, we still have to rely on nurses from the mainland. So at any point in time, we have quite a few hundred nurses from the mainland working in the state, and they tend to come in for you know, eight weeks, 12 weeks, 14 weeks at a time for a rotation, then we'll rotate them out. They'll need to go back to their home or to another assignment. Then we're bringing in additional staff. And so because our hospitals continue to be very, very full, we will continue to need more staff we are working, working with our nursing programs, but we have challenges there in terms of getting faculty. You know, we've got a shortage of nursing faculty in the state. And so we have a lot more applicants, qualified applicants, than what we can teach, which is really frustrating that we've got, you know, young people in the state who want to get trained to be a nurse and they have all the qualifications, they have all the prerequisites, but we just can't accommodate them. We just don't have enough faculty to teach them and that's very frustrating and that's something that we're working on as well but that's a very challenging issue to address. What about this notion of these packs that states have you know to have their nurses come through because I understand that I think Hawaii may be one of the few states that doesn't have that reciprocal arrangement. What you're referring to Catherine is a nursing compact where right now there's over 35 states who do participate in that compact and there is another five or six states that are actively looking, either have legislation in place or actively working to participate in the pact. And under the compact, they have everyone, all the states that are in this nursing compact, multi-state nursing compact, they all agree as to what the standard should be in terms of qualifications and background, et cetera. And so everyone agrees you've got this one common standard that everyone agrees to, which is a very, very good standard. And once you get licensed in a state that is part of the compact, then you can go and work in another state that's within the compact without applying for a license in that state. So it does allow for much freer movement of staff, nursing staff in this case, across states. Now, in Hawaii, we have looked at this previously. There has been some legislation in, introduced, and it does require a legislative approval. So the legislature would have to approve this, and the governor would have to sign off on it, or at least not veto it. We are looking at whether we can or should reintroduce this topic of the nursing, multi-state nursing compact and have Hawaii participate as well. Because, And the reason the legislature has to approve it is because licensing is a this state responsibility it's done by the department of commerce and consumer affairs and so oversight of all the departments is through the legislative process and in terms of you know the the authority they have and that's why the legislature 
and the governor has to approve of this. So we are actively working right now to gather information, to talk to all the interested parties, and to potentially introduce legislation during the 2023 legislative session to have discussions, some very serious discussions about whether Hawaii should become part of this compact. So why, why haven't we done this before? I mean, well, what were the roadblocks? Are, there before? are a couple of reasons. One of them is the money in that the Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs, for example, the licensing branch that actually licenses nurses, they get their funding from the application fees. And if you have less people getting licenses in Hawaii, now if you are a new nurse and you graduate in Hawaii, you'd have to get a license in Hawaii, and so you'd pay a fee and that would go to the DCCA. However, if you were licensed in, say for example, Maryland, which is part of the compact, and you come to Hawaii, because you no longer need a nurse's license in Hawaii under the compact rules, if we were to become part of the compact, then you wouldn't have to apply for a license, which means that the DCCA would not get those fees. Now. That's not an insurmountable issue, but is it, it is an issue that would need to be addressed. That was Hilton Rachel of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii talking about the challenges dealing with the healthcare, healthcare worker shortage, including our limited nursing staff, as well as the concept of becoming a nursing compact state. Hawaii is one of less than a dozen states that uh, do not have an agreement to allow nurses flexibility when it comes to licensing in multiple states. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Outrigger Hotels and Resorts, committed to guest and employee safety, while also featuring the Malama Hawaii Experience, offering hands-on cultural learning in Malama Ka'aina, caring for the land, outrigger.com. Do animals trust each other? Other animals, like chimpanzees, they manage to form trusting relationships in fairly small groups. Humans are different. What's the amazing thing about humans for me is that we can create trust among strangers. It's part one of our special series, Essential Trust, what trust is, why we need it, and what happens when it's lost. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Punahou School, a K-12 community dedicated to providing learning and growth opportunities for tomorrow's leaders. Now accepting applications for fall 2023 at punahou.edu. Got milk? Well, for our reality check, Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton joins us to talk about the high cost of milk and the latest efforts to do something about it. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. You know, I always used to chuckle because, you know, if you are a, a, a parent, you know how much, you know, your children drink milk. <laughs> they drink a lot of it. And the cost of milk, yeah. I mean, gosh, it's way more than a gallon of gas. Oh, yeah, way more, even with our uh, high gas prices. It's up there, and, uh, again, it's, it's hard to find a gallon of milk for less than $7 here, so it's uh, quite expensive. Yeah, so your story today looks about efforts to uh, restart, jumpstart our dairy industry. I mean, we used to have, gosh, I think it was more than 100 dairies at one time. Right, and now we're down to one. Um, the one dairy farm on the Big Island, 800 cows. Um, again, the owner of Meadow Gold is, is hoping to change that. We'll talk more about that later. But, yes, the state of the dairy industry um, is pretty much um, done now. And so uh, what's the snapshot? I mean, I, the other day I just drove by, you know, the Meadow Gold uh, processing plant downtown thinking, gosh, you know, that that's probably got to make way for another high-rise in that area. Right. So that's true. So snapshot. Um, parent company of Meadow Gold went bankrupt um, in uh, before the pandemic. Um, during the pandemic 2020, um, the, a new owner, Baman Sadegi, former dairy farmer from the Big Island, uh, bought Meadow Gold. 
not the facility on Sheridan Street behind Walmart. Um, that was left out of the sale. But uh, facility in Hilo and uh, the brand, and they've since opened a distribution center in Waipahu. So that's kind of the state of the industry now. Now he is saying, look, in order to lower the cost of milk, we really have to produce more milk here locally, not simply process it. All of their milk, just about. Some milk comes from the remaining dairy farm on the Big Island, but most of it comes from uh, in bulk, either in bulk and it's reprocessed here, or a lot of the milk is actually packaged in California and sold here. So very little milk being produced here Shipping costs are expensive, and so the idea is uh, eliminate the shipping costs, and we can sell milk for cheaper. And so this uh, last dairy in in Javi, it's Cloverleaf, right? Right. And so, gosh, I mean, you know, what are the plans then to expand? I mean, we saw the efforts uh, that Pierre Midiar uh, ran into, uh, you know, when he tried to put in a dairy on Kauai. Yes, that's right. So, exactly. And then he's the publisher um, of, of Civil Beat. Um, separately, they tried to do, or his, his uh, company, um, Ulupono, tried to do something on Kauai and ran into the same problems that uh, Mr. Sadegi here recognizes very clearly as challenges, uh, namely environmental problems. You know, dairy farms can be um, smelly and produce a lot of waste. And, you know, th- this is a risk. Um, and he sees this as a surmountable uh, obstacle. He says if you do it in the right location with the right practices, you can avoid uh, these kinds of nuisance and environmental concerns um, from the community. Well, you know, I think there's a big push to you know, get our resiliency up as a state. And certainly if we had our own dairies here, you know, we wouldn't have to bring in uh, so much milk from you know, the mainland. Right. So resiliency, also the idea, let's grow more of the feed for the cows here. So he's bought land to grow feed and other companies that uh, do grow feed here. Um, so that's another part of the plan. Um, but there's also a, um interesting lawsuit um, pending. And a, a competitor distributor, um, the White Food Service Alliance, is saying, wait a minute, you guys are – saying on your package, Hawaii's dairy and made with aloha, and most of your milk's made not in Hawaii. This is misleading. It's misleading the public. And so they filed a uh, false designation of origin, we'll call it lawsuit, uh, generally kind of a uh, trademark-based complaint saying, wait a minute, you're pretending this is made somewhere that it's not. So we'll see where that goes, but that could have a big impact on this company. All right. Well, we'll remain to be seen then uh, whether... This idea uh, will come to fruition. But, yeah, very interesting story. Thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read a story at civilbeat.org. Don Takeuchi Apuna is starting her second week as the acting director of Honolulu's Department of Planning and Permitting. HBR's Casey Harlow had the opportunity to sit down with her about, and talk about the challenges ahead given the sudden departure of two key people in the Blangerity administration. Uh, Casey joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, uh, so had a chance uh, to speak with the new acting director. Uh, seems that we are the only people who uh, were uh, speaking with her. but. Spoke about a lot of things, uh, staffing, permitting, uh, the uh, monster homes, vacation rentals, just everything that, you know, DPP oversees and that are challenges. And Takuchi Opuna says that the staffing shortage is definitely the biggest and most urgent uh, issue and challenge that the department is facing. And she says, you know, they have roughly a 25% vacancy rate, uh, which means in open positions of around 80, I think. And this is what she had to say about the staffing shortage. We have like a 25% vacancy rate. We're deficient in training and some of our standard operating procedures and our technology. So we're trying to just bring things up to a standard that makes it just so we can do our job. We can work at a better pace and just 
I think a lot of the things that we have going on are outdated and just not up to industry standards. So we just have to work on all of these different areas in order to be a smooth running machine. And so uh, she says, recent uh, new update to this, uh, she says roughly 20 people have been hired since August, but uh, hiring is also kind of uh, an issue as well because with the staffing shortage and you know everybody a little bit overburdened uh, with a lot of different duties and things like that, it takes time away to actually interview and to hire people or to even train them in a way. And so it's all about building capacity for her, uh, but in order to build capacity, you need more staff, right? And uh, another thing that is also uh, leading to the staffing shortage is also the re- uh, retention of employees. Um, the former acting director uh, under the Caldwell administration has told the city council numerous times during those meetings that retention was you know, one of the biggest things that are leading to the staffing shortage because uh, salaries weren't uh, competitive and they would go to the uh, private sector. So it seemed like it was a revolving door for a lot of people uh, coming in, getting trained, and once they're trained and they know the process and they know what to do, they leave uh, to go get paid uh, at private sector where you know that skill set is definitely needed and companies don't have to pay for that sort of training. But you know she does say that compensation is a big issue, but it's also a lot of other things as well. These aren't easy jobs. I think we need to look closely at how we can retain our employees and make their daily lives better, whether it's like providing more capacity so they don't feel like they're overburdened and overworked. There's just a lot of things that we can do in addition to getting, you know, the correct salaries for people to have them stick around. And so the staffing shortage obviously leads to the biggest uh, thing that has been making a lot of noise lately, which is the permitting process, which has been leading to the backlog and the delays. You know, six months to two years is what uh, the time frame that the former director Uchida, you know, gave uh, to a town hall meeting of when people can get their uh, building permits up and running. And so uh, Apuna says that DPP receives more than 20,000 applications or permits a year. And right now there's just not enough reviewers to meet that demand. And she says the department is working on getting a bot to help expedite the pre-screen process, which, you know, uh, last week we spoke about we got reaction from architects and uh, city council chair uh, Tommy Waters about the issues uh, going on at DPP, and that pre-screen process was a big deal for the architects, right? And so this, the bot is all about the modernization project that's still ongoing. That's not affected by the resignations at all. Uh, but she does think that there needs to be more done at DPP regarding uh, getting the private sector to, you know, get their applications in and get it squared away. I think at some point we're going to do public outreach to better educate what will help applicants with their application to make it smoother because it's as close as you can get your plans, uh, your application in that meet all requirements, the faster it will go through the process. So besides trying to change the process, I think a good part of it is helping the, the industry and the design professionals provide what exactly what we're looking for so there's not a lot of back and forth. And I, I know a lot of folks are were wondering about, you know, whether this shakeup is going to impact the rollout of the vacation rental ordinance that's supposed to happen next month. Yes. Uh, October 23rd is when it's going to go into effect. And uh, she says that actually um, DPP has uh, gotten, uh, made the steps that they need uh, to roll that out. And she is confident, she says she's confident that they're going to be able to start enforcing that on October 23rd. However, uh, when that bill was signed back in April, uh, they requested seven full-time positions. Uh, she alluded to in the story regarding uh, moving some inspectors around uh, from one division to another to then just be focused on that. But she says all indications they are going to be uh, enforcing that new law on October 23rd when it goes into effect. Okay, we'll see how that works if they're fully staffed. But thank you so much, yes. Casey. Thanks. We have been talking to HBR's Casey Harlow on the new leadership at Honolulu's Department of Planning and Permitting. Check out his story online at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for HPR comes from the BIA Big Home Building and Remodeling Show, offering seminars on energy efficiency, aging in place design, and more September 23rd to the 25th at the Neil S. Blaisdell Center, biahawaii.org. Lymphedema is an often overlooked cause of swelling, and over time, it can be irreversible. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the best way to identify and treat this potentially disfiguring condition. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Occupational Safety and Health and the National Emphasis Program, helping to protect employees from heat-related hazards. labor.hawaii.gov slash h-i-o-s-h slash heat. This is The Conversation on uh, listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Scientists are honing in on a way to predict supernovas. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence with your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet, also things we can try and spot in our dark skies. As usual, we are fortunate to have astronomer Christopher Phillips at our disposal, and wouldn't you know, he's on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have for us this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, stargazers look to the east during sunrise to catch a glimpse of Venus as it rises in the morning sky. Also, look to the southeast after sunset to catch Jupiter and Saturn. The moon this week is approaching its first quarter phase, and so conditions will be perfect for stargazing. Now, one of the things we're really privileged to have on Stargazer via Chris is news about developments in the technology to obtain these discoveries. And I understand today you've got something on a new technique that could end up being groundbreaking. Yeah, especially in the field of supernovae, the explosive deaths of giant stars. These are some of the most energetic and enticing cosmic events to occur in the cosmos. These events are frustratingly hard to observe, with most supernovae being observed hours or days after the initial detonation of the host star. This, however, may be about to change. In a new study published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, astronomers think there may be a way to predict which stars may be on the verge of going supernovae and increase our chances of catching them in the act. And how would they predict something like that's going to happen? Well, the authors of the paper suggest that a precursor to a supernova may be the formation of a super cocoon, a shell of superheated gas that surrounds the host star. By studying historical data and using complex computer models, astronomers came to the conclusion that the formation of a super cocoon is an indicator that a star is about to go bang in the most dramatic way possible. And obviously, no doubt for people into astronomy, Betelgeuse and Orion is one of those, yeah? <laughs> Indeed. It is a super red giant, a type of star that is very much at the end of its life. It is the buildup of a super cocoon around a super red giant star that indicates when it's about to go off. As this cocoon builds up, the chances of the supernova increase also. But in the case of Betelgeuse, it still has a while to go because its cocoon is not yet fully formed. And does this mean, Chris, that we could track this thing and then conceivably right before it's about to blow up, have everybody tuned in and they could, we could watch it on like a big uh, simulcast thing, It'd be like a big show and a lot of fun, kind of a unifying event? Well, that's the plan, in some sense at least, anyway. And right now we have to put this theory to the test. Unfortunately, that means scanning the heavens for likely candidates, which could take a while. We're hoping that a previously recorded super red giant star has built up of enough of a cocoon to warrant observation. Either way, supernova hunters could be in for a very productive new era in capturing these incredible events. And if we're super lucky and we can refine this technique, then watching them live is not beyond the realms of possibility. Learning how it's done with Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dave. You're welcome. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. 
Maui Seabury Hall is celebrating the 10th anniversary of its Aali'i Ku Honua Creative Arts Center. As part of the festivities, seven performing arts professionals who live as far away as New York City and as close as Makawao are visiting the campus. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with a couple of them to talk about their school performance memories. We start with harpist and vocalist um, uh, Molly Bauckham, class of 1993, who was based in Seattle. Both the English department and the theater department instilled a lifelong love of Shakespeare in me, which is still a really big part of my performing and just sort of almost my personality. They had a really excellent music program. Chuck Olson, who sadly has passed away, was our music director and taught me a lot about how to use my singing voice. David Ward, the dance teacher, still there. He's spearheading this whole thing. And I was never the world's greatest dancer, but he still taught me a lot about body awareness. They instilled such a love of theater in me and such a a yearning to just do it and to learn more about it and to learn new skills. You found this love for performing. You were taught. You were given a great foundation. Can you share a story that is really memorable for you of those life lessons that you found at Seabury Hall? I just remember, this is something I always laugh about, the performing arts department in terms of like looking at people as individuals and not just everything being you know down to a very set curriculum. My last year there, when I went to join the, the chorale, it was conflicting with one of my math classes, trigonometry to be specific. And Chuck Olson, the head of the chorale, took me to the headmaster and said, look, Obviously, math is important, but I think that for this particular person, it's going to be more valuable for her going into her career going forward to hone her skills in singing rather than honing her skills in trigonometry. So they actually (laughs) gave me a special dispensation to take women's chorale instead of trig. And I don't know if that's a good story to tell or not, but I just think that it was a good example of them finding people's strengths and cultivating them rather than being hung up on the exact curriculum as expected. No, that's a wonderful start because what I'm hearing is that you had adults in school who were going to bat for you, who recognized that for you, it was helping you hone your voice because that's how they saw you going forward in your career, to have adults around who really nurture and guide you into the right direction. That's really important. Yeah, that was my experience. If it had been one of the really more fundamental, like algebra, obviously I would never have skipped algebra, but trigonometry was getting just into the more specialized sides of math where there are fewer places where you're going to be going where that specific thing is going to be as necessary as the vocal training. Did you have a performing arts stage when you were going to school? We didn't. We split our time between the cafeteria And the chapel, you know, we had the chapel and we used that for quite a few performances as well. I felt like I got out of there with such a a well-rounded set of skills and that sense of curiosity and desire to learn and love of language and love of music and love of dance. Really, that inspiration has been very valuable and very precious to me as an adult. That was musician Molly Bauckham, who has recorded an Irish folk album and last year played harp while performing Shakespeare in the Park. She'll be performing a medley of Shakespeare she set to music and performing by my side with current students. Next, we meet teacher and choreographer Amelia Nelson Couture, class of 2002. She studied dance on the continent but returned to work in Hawaii. I started going to Seabury in the sixth grade, which I believe was 1990. I'm trying to do math in my head, six. And that was the first year that the performing arts program moved from the cafeteria to the performing arts center, but not the new beautiful creative arts center that they have today. My sixth grade year was the very first year that we had a building that was dedicated to the performing arts by itself. And that was huge for us. I mean, it had a dance studio. It had what we thought was a huge stage with enough room for, I think, 150 or 200 people to watch performances. It had a very, very small dressing room and even places for costumes. So we thought that was very luxurious compared to working out of the cafeteria. But then to go now and be able to work with the students at Seabury and perform myself in the Creative Arts Center, it is a huge step forward. 
the technology of the space and the lighting and the beautiful dance studio that is attached, I feel so blessed to be able to still use that as alumni. And for the students now, they're in the creative arts. It's just an amazing thing to have. I remember doing elementary school play for Christmas on the stage in the cafeteria. So small. And then going to high school where you have like a bigger stage, right? And you got like the actual curtains going up. It's like, wow, <laughs> we've made it. I also got to go to UH Hilo for a summer and working on their stage. So totally get how you're talking about like dressing rooms or the studio space for dance. Really wonderful place for you as a creative to be nurtured. As a professional dancer on Maui, both as a performer and as a teacher, the CIC at Seabury Hall has been so integral into everything I have done since coming back to Maui to work professionally in dance. It is a gorgeous state-of-the-art center, for one, and it is really the perfect size for either small professional dance companies like the one I founded, Adaptations Dance Theater, with my friend Sally Hunt in 2013. And we called the CAC the home of that dance company for a long time. And then also, it has been huge for the ballet school I work at, the Alexander Academy of Performing Arts, which also needs a large theater space, but is a small enough school that renting out a space as large as the Maui Arts and Cultural Center is cost prohibitive for our school. And at Seamary, it works in your budget. Space-wise, you've been able to utilize it. Yes. Yes, Seabury has been so generous with the, the price point that they sent for renting the theater and also making room for community organizations in their performance schedule. To see it progress, the CAC now, to its 10th anniversary, celebrating that with the Hast Forward event coming up, which you will be taking part in. I'm really excited. I, I, I honestly can't wait to see the alumni come back and to meet the student artists there now and to get to perform for my community, which I love to do whenever I get the chance. Bringing things home and back to Hawaii and like fortifying the soil here is very important to me in my professional life, and I love to see other artists doing that as well. That was Amelia Couture, Seabury Hall, class of 2002, now a professional dancer and teacher in Makawao. She'll be doing an acrobatic aerial dance on rope, and she's collaborating with visual, visual artists senior Izzy Farwig, class of 23, and junior Elena Parente, class of 24, who are helping to design Amelia's costume. Molly Bacham and Amelia Couture performed at the uh, the center's inaugural gala a decade ago. Both are students of David Wart, Seabury Hall's director of dance. He's been with the school for over three decades and is very proud to see working professionals share their talents with the next generation of budding artists. Collaborative workshops and rehearsals culminate in two performances this weekend. You're helping get the word out. You're celebrating the 10th anniversary. I know it's affectionately called the CAC for short, but its proper name is the Ali'i Kuhonua Creative Arts Center. You're living there. You're breathing in that space, really existing in that space. How many kids do you think have gone through those doors? We're not a huge school. We only have, we have just over 500 students. But in that 10 years, you know, our performing art department is thriving not just because of our facility, but we also have really a top-notch team of faculty that are just passionate about what they do here. For the 10-year anniversary, we're doing this performance called Past Forward, where we've invited seven alum to come and perform with our students. These people are like well-honed in their, in their careers, and they're coming back, and, and not only are they going to perform, but we have them doing master classes and workshops. And in some cases, we have student performers who are going to perform with them, kind of a way of passing the torch from those who have received, who are now those who are giving to our students. 
And, you know, each one of us in our departments, whether it's band, chorus, music, our Hawaiian music ensemble, we all have students performing. And right now, out of our 500 students, we have about 140 kids who will be performing in this event. So if you really think about the percentages, that's a large number of our student population who are involved in the arts. We are honoring the past while igniting the future. And that is what this Past Forward event is all about. It's bringing people together who help build the foundation and, and setting up the flame under these young people to really just burst out with passion in whatever they decide to do in their lives. Got to give you credit to have that many students engaged and being part of this production. That really speaks to your ability to make this something that draws them in and that they want to participate in. Yes, thank you so much. That is the key. You know, we have people, well, I would even go to say it starts with the administration, right? Since I've been there, they believe that the performing arts and fine arts are really vital to educating a full person, right? It's not just we have really high academic standards at the school, but we know that these creative outlets really are what give people their character. It gives them their fearlessness, their confidence, their ability to think outside the box in creating solutions. So, you know, yeah, so we have a lot of support and it's garnered great success for our programming. And can I share a story with you about about really how the arts have really served our students uh, like during the last two years in this pandemic situation? When we came back after the lockdown in the spring, you know, for our first year back in the fall, We came back live. We didn't have online learning, and we were asked to kind of try within the new guidelines of everybody being masked and distant and all of our classes. We had to keep people six feet apart and all of that. And then I was asked to create a a production to do a musical, and I was like, oh, okay. So I decided to do Smokey Joe's Cafe because it's, it's a review, right? It's several different pieces of music, and I thought I could keep people distant and held auditions thinking, you know what, am I going to get 10 people? I had over 30 kids come out for this show, and the show really is only supposed to be cast for seven actors. But I took everybody because I believed, okay, if they want to do this, we're going to do it together. So we started rehearsals, and I was trying to be creative and figure out ways, you know, how do I do this with keeping people apart and moving set pieces around? Anyway, performance time came, and the show got canceled because of COVID situations. So we postponed it to December, and it got canceled in December. And then we postponed it to January, and it got canceled again. And at that point, I said to the cast, I said, look, we don't have to keep doing this, right? I mean, people have studies, they have other things, because this takes their time, right? We're rehearsing in the evenings, in the afternoons. But not one single student wanted to give this show up. And it spoke to me that this was far more than just a show. This was serving a way for these kids who had had so much taken away from them as like a club, a musical theater club, where they could gather and be with friends and not be stuck in their bedrooms at home and isolated from people. And so I I went with them. We finally performed in February. It was a five and a half month journey. And it was just one of the most deeply rewarding and moving experiences of my 35 years. And this facility really lent itself to being a place of safety and comfort for these children. Mm. So the CAC really enhanced the fabric of the school. I'm hearing how your students were really committed, adamant that the show would go on. That's exactly right. I mean, we performed the show with masks and everything, and we only have a handful of people in the audience. Some parents came. I think we did multiple performances, so we would be able to invite one parent of each cast member. And then we were able to, the license allowed us to video and show it to more people. But yeah, they didn't even care that it was that. They just wanted to be together. They wanted to see this thing through. The facility, you know, it's such a beautiful place to be in. And the kids just feel so safe and comfortable in there to be the crazy kids that they are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anyway, it was a really good experience. You know, last year we did a musical, another review, again, because we're still trying to be safe. So we did Candor and Ebb, The World Goes Round. And it was the first time we were able to take masks off and have a decent-sized audience. And I just want to say, after two years of not seeing these kids' faces, and you know, when you go from a ninth grader to an 11th grader, your face changes. Now, some of these kids who were new, I had never seen their faces. 
And then all of a sudden, dress rehearsal came, and those kids took off those masks, and I sat out in that audience, and I literally, my eyes were swelling up. I could hardly hold my emotions back. These kids sang and danced like you would never believe, just that freedom of that first moment of taking those masks off. What an incredible experience and a powerful experience that was. I have been in this business a very long time, and I don't think I've ever seen kids that expressive you know, just really belting their hearts out because I think they just felt a sense of freedom for the first time in two years. Mm. And this arts facility, it's more than just a building. It's a beautiful gathering space, not just for the school community, but for the community around you. When the center was built, the whole idea of the center was to create a facility that would not really just be a venue for performances, but would also serve the community as classrooms, as a place for daily assemblies and so on. And honestly, every single inch of this facility is used constantly. It has become a beacon for our community as well. I mean, we have a lot of people who will come and attend our performances who are not necessarily affiliated with Seabury or have children there. And then we also rent the facility out to community groups whether they're performing groups or like TEDx Youth happens there every year. And, you know, there's so many things that we do that really serve our community besides just the school community. So, yeah, it has really become a place that the whole community loves and knows. That was HPR's Lillian Song with David Ward, Seabury Hall's director of dance and the creative energy behind the 10th anniversary celebration for Seabury Hall's Creative Arts Center Past Forward takes place this weekend, September 23rd and 24th. We'll share links and photos on our page at hawaiipublicradio.org later today. Sometimes when winds are still unexpectedly perhaps beyond Silent hill, a voice will come to me. Well, that is it for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from the Nurses Association about its position on this notion of Hawaii becoming a compact nursing state. What are your thoughts about our nursing shortage? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. All of our shows are archived. You can find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.